Hello and welcome to the ESVS podcast. I'm Susanne Stokmans. And I'm Laurent Bertrand. Today we are going to discuss the meta-analysis of compliance with endovascular aneurysm repair surveillance, the AFAR surveillance paradox, a study published by Dr. Antonio and colleagues in the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery in February 2023. Let's start by looking what this paper has to add. So this study was an initiative by the International Risk Stratification and Endovascular Aneurysm Repair Working Group, also known as IRIS-EVAR. It was created in the context of ongoing debate about the benefits of EVAR surveillance. As early as EVAR 1, the outcomes of EVAR have been clear. The early mortality and morbidity benefits come at the price of inferior late survival compared with open repair. Subsequent studies, such as the OVER and DREAM trials, show that this continues to be true even with modern EVAR technology. As a result, lifelong surveillance programs have become ingrained in guidelines and clinical practice worldwide. In the past, some have suggested even not offering EVAR to patients where compliance to follow-up is likely to be lacking. However, the benefits of this rigid surveillance program also come at a cost, a cost not only to our overburdened health systems, but also to the patients. Subject to lifelong surveillance imaging, patients are repeatedly burdened with clinical visits and potentially re-exposed to radiation and nephrotoxic intravenous contrast. More importantly, the actual survival benefit of this surveillance has not yet been proven. This is the most comprehensive meta-analysis to date, attempting to answer this important question on the actual benefit of follow-up after standard EVAR. It includes 13 studies with more than 22,000 patients. What was the stated objective of this study? So the objective was to compare the survival of patients who had ended full surveillance after endovascular aneurysm repair, so after EVAR, with those who were non-compliant. Non-compliance was defined as a failure to attend at least one post-EVAR follow-up. Now this leaves quite some room for disparity. Some patients who might have missed one single appointment, others who might have been followed up every two or three years, or even every five years, or erratically, or only when presenting symptoms, or not at all. For this reason, the study pre-specified a secondary objective comparing patients who had complete follow-up to those who had none at all. Were the methods robust? Yes, this systematic review was conducted in accordance with the PRISMA guidelines, The objectives and methods were pre-specified in a protocol, registered in the International Prospective Register of Systematic Reviews, and no amendments were made during the study. Quality of non-randomized studies was assessed with the Newcastle-Ottawa scale, and two independent review authors assessed the risk of bias in selected studies. Eligible studies had to compare patients compliant versus non-compliant with EVAR surveillance, and included men or women of any age undergoing the standard EVA procedures. Elective procedures, as well as symptomatic or ruptured AAA, were included, but complex endovascular reconstruction, including juxta, para, suprarenal aortic aneurysms, such as those requiring fenestrated or branched devices, were excluded. So this means that the findings of this meta-analysis alludes to and are applicable only to standard infrarenal EVAR within or out of IFU, but not complex VVAR, BVAR, GVAR procedures. Is that right? Exactly. Only standard infrarenal EVAR. How many studies were included in the analysis? So they identified 3,490 studies on the databases and registries. 
13 cohort studies were eligible and included. This gave us the total of 22,762 patients. Five studies were for single center, four multi-center, and the remaining four were reports from registries. Seven of the studies originated in the USA, three in the UK, two in the Netherlands, and one in Canada. All studies were retrospective, observational cohort studies. They were published between 2005 and 2022, with the patients treated between 1996 and 2020. What were the main results of the study? The pooled proportion of patients who were compliant with EVAR surveillance was 57%. The other 43% were thus non-compliant. The proportion of patients who were either lost to follow-up or had not even one single post-EVAR surveillance was 37%. Now, data on all-cause mortality was reported in all studies and was not statistically significantly different between non-compliant and compliant patients. Hazard ratio was 1.04% with a 95% confidence interval of 0.61 to 1.77. Next, data on aneurysm-related mortality was reported in three studies, included 6,577 patients and was also not statistically significantly different between non-compliant and compliant patients. Hazard ratio 1.80, 95% confidence interval 0.85 to 3.80. Next, data on reintervention was reported in seven studies, includes 14,615 patients, and was actually hired in the compliant group, but the difference was also not statistically significant. Hazard ratio, 0.66, confidence interval, 95%, 0.31 to 1.41. Lastly, the data on aneurysm rupture was reported in four studies. It includes 15,331 patients and was higher in the compliant group, but the difference was not statistically significant. Odds ratio 0.63 in favor of non-compliance with 95% confidence interval 0.39 to 1.01. So there was no statistical benefit to being fully compliant to their surveillance programs? That's correct. In the measured outcomes of reintervention, aneurysm rupture, aneurysm-related mortality, and all-cause mortality, there was no benefit from surveillance. But the grade level of evidence for all four outcomes was measured as very low. And what about the secondary outcome of looking at the 37% of patients with no surveillance at all? All-cause mortality was not statistically significantly different in this group compared to patients with complete surveillance. The hazard ratio was 1.10 with a 95% confidence interval 0.43 to 2.80. And how was the risk of bias evaluated? And what secondary analysis was approached to tackle bias? So eight of the 13 studies included were deemed high risk of bias. However, sensitivity analyses repeating the calculations without these studies show the results to be unchanged. Also, additional analyses, including only the studies that propensity matched their cohorts for confounders, did not affect the results. One other important secondary analysis worth mentioning is the exclusion of aortic rupture. This too did not change the significance nor the direction of the effect estimates for any of the outcomes. Because EVAR techniques and technology has evolved and improved over time, isn't it questionable that these results can be applied to current practice? Patients were indeed treated in the very long time frame of 1996 to 2020. However, another secondary analysis was done, including only studies published after 2010. 
The results were no different. This is unsurprising, as one would assume that modern techniques and technology would have improved outcomes overall, therefore making the need for surveillance potentially even less prominent. On the contrary, the benefit of including these older studies allows a comprehensive view of the patient population over long follow-up periods. Precisely, these long-term data points are needed to start seeing a difference in mortality with better surveillance, or indeed not. And what are the limitations of this meta-analysis? First, it is important to remember that the level of evidence was evaluated along the grade principles as very low level of evidence. This is in part explained by the 8 out of 13 studies evaluated as low in methodological quality. These are the 8 that were deemed high risk of bias on the Newcastle-Ottawa scale. Another important reason was the high heterogeneity between the studies. I mean that the large variations in definition of what compliance is, allowing for local protocols and regional guidelines that differ greatly. As is to be expected, there is then also a large range of non-compliance rates between the studies, reporting between 15% and 65% of non-compliance. Secondly, because of the retrospective design, there is a problem that some of the patients may have deliberately been planned for more or less rigorous follow-up different from local protocol. This creates a couple of important potential confounders. Firstly, patients who were frail, elderly, or suffering from dementia may have been deliberately offered less surveillance as they were deemed unfit for reintervention anyways. This could have skewed the results, although this would potentially overestimate the effect of routine surveillance, not vice versa. Another subset is patients who had sac regression and no endoleak early in the post-op imaging who may have been subject to less than planned follow-up compared to patients with initial endoleaks, therefore masking the effects of compliance to follow-up. Of course, this study is actually saying that is perhaps exactly what we should be doing. Perhaps the post-op protocols shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all mentality at all. So, and we mentioned different guidelines. What are the current guidelines and local protocols? While the current American SVS guidelines continue to support yearly surveillance, the ESVS guidelines allow a five-year interval for repeat imaging if the initial post-op scan is satisfactory. That means no endoleaks and adequate seal. Current practice guidelines often vary even more than that, with regional guidelines or even center-specific protocols that prove very difficult to compare with one another. And what are the conclusions of the study? Do the authors suggest we stop surveillance programs? So interesting, the authors proposed two possible interpretations to their results. One way to go is surveillance does not improve life expectancy or rupture rates, so we should all be surveilling everyone less. The second interpretation is that complete or close surveillances actually can improve life expectancy and rupture rates in a subset of patients, but this study is inadequate to tell us who it truly benefits. What they say is what we really need are studies designed to find the characteristics of patients who would benefit from surveillance. So what is the take-home message then? Take-home messages. So irrespective of the results and the outcomes of the study, this study gives us information about compliance. About half of our patients are actually doing follow-up as prescribed. About a third of our patients are radically incompliant. When it comes to the results, This study shows that there may not be a benefit to surveillance at all, as aneurysm rupture, aneurysm-related death, and all-cause mortality was not improved with compliance to surveillance. In conclusion, a more balanced approach 
to post EVAR surveillance is probably more appropriate. Who should or shouldn't be followed up and why remains to be determined. This is very thought-provoking, and I'm sure it will trigger a debate in individual centers and impact future guidelines. Indeed, we encourage all our listeners to read the complete article. The complete article reference is Meta-Analysis of Compliance with Endovascular Aneurysm Repair Surveillance, the EVAR Surveillance Paradox. It's written by George Antonio, Nicolaus Contopodis, Stephen Rogers and co. It's published in the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery, the February edition, 2023, volume 65, issue 2, pages 244 to 254. We will link the complete article in the show notes. This article was also mentioned in a previous podcast on late complications after EVAR. We would recommend our listeners to check that episode as well. More discussions on key papers and other vascular podcasts coming soon. We will also attend this year's ESVS annual meeting with a live podcast stand. So we hope to catch you in Belfast this September. In the meantime, please follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram to stay updated on new releases. We wish you all a great day. Talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Bye.